This is gonna be the first part in a series that deals with the sin that conquers kings. And it's something that actually affects every person. You know, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter one that the Lord has called us to be a nation of kings and priests. And um, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Daniel. Fourth chapter of Daniel. And while you're doing that, I'll share a little story with you. This uh, very wealthy Texan oil man, his wife kept saying she wanted to go see England. She wanted to see the sights in London. And so he finally gave in and they took a trip, but he had a lot of money. And so she booked us the best of the best. And um, when they arrived at this swanky hotel there in London, the manager actually came out to reach, to visit and welcome this very wealthy uh, Texas businessman and uh, this rancher, and he says, welcome to our fine hotel, this is the nicest in London. And the Texan, he looks at it and he goes, you call this a hotel? He says, I got a barn bigger than this back in Texas. Of course, everything's bigger in Texas. Well, that didn't go over very well. And so then the manager says, well, let me show you around a little bit. And so he brought him in, shows him this great, big, beautiful restaurant, and Texan says, this is your restaurant? So back in Texas, my pantry is bigger than this. Well, that's bothering the manager. It's starting to get to him. But he said, well, let's take a look outside. And he said, here you see we've got one of the biggest swimming pools in the city. And the rancher says, swimming pool? My bathtub is bigger than that back in Texas. Well, let me show you your presidential suite. He takes him upstairs and opens the door and shows him the suite. And the man walks around. He said, where is it? So, well, this is your suite. This is, I got a closet bigger than this back in Texas. But I forget, everything's bigger back in Texas. And hotel manager couldn't take it anymore. So that night he called a friend that worked at the London Zoo. He said, you owe me a favor. He said, I want to borrow your sea turtle. He said, I promise I'll bring it back safely. So the manager had his housekeepers put the sea turtle in the king-size bed of the Texan while he and his wife were out that day shopping. And as he expected, when the rancher came back and went up to his room, he got a call at the front desk. And he said, what, there's something going, what's this varmint in my bed? And the manager said, oh, sir, we're so sorry. It appears you've run into one of our English bed bugs. Nobody likes pride and arrogance, especially in other people. The problem with pride, it's sort of like bad breath. If you've got it, you don't know it, but everyone around you does. And you can see that it's an issue all the way through the scriptures. And we're gonna look at some of the kings in the Bible. I was amazed how many times we find that there are kings in the Bible that fell because of pride. And I think those stories are in the Bible as a warning to you and me. Someone once said, you are never more like the devil than when you are proud. That's what got the devil expelled from heaven, his pride. And so we're gonna start with, go to the book of Daniel chapter four. This is a very uh, clear story about King Nebuchadnezzar. And he has a dream in Daniel chapter four and um, this is one of the only chapters in the Bible that actually is written, this in the Gospel of Luke, 
only chapter really in the Old Testament written by a non-Jew. And Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, chapter 4 of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion from generation to generation. He makes this introduction because Nebuchadnezzar thought and hoped his kingdom would be the everlasting kingdom. You find that back in Daniel's prophecy of chapter 2 and again in chapter 3. Pastor Ross was talking about this morning. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Now, you remember that if you study Daniel chapter 1, there's this great image, or Daniel chapter 2, sorry. The image dream, this image has got the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and the iron and clay. And the head of gold was who? Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, it's technically Nebuchadnezzar II if you look him up, but no one ever knows anything about the first. But Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, and that kingdom at its zenith had so much money coming in from tribute from these other wealthy kingdoms like Egypt and Persia that had been conquered that everything was gold. And Nebuchadnezzar was a passionate builder kind of like Herod the Great during the time of Christ. And, and he built this massive city and um, beautiful palaces, one of the wonders of the world. The hanging gardens of Babylon were in Babylon that he built for his wife because she missed the mountains. He said, I'll make you a mountain. So he made this great temple with uh, flowing water and, and one historian said they had found a way to mechanically pumped the water up to the top so it would run down in waterfalls. And we're still not exactly sure how they accomplished that. So he has this beautiful, spectacular, splendid kingdom that during his 39, 40-year reign, he had built up. It didn't take that long, of course. And 60 miles in circumference, the capital. Three walls. Euphrates River supplies the moat around the city. I mean, I just want it to be in your mind that it really was pretty impressive. Ancient Babylon. It's sort of the earthly counterfeit for the New Jerusalem. So um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Now, I'm going to summarize it for you because I can't spend the whole time talking about Nebuchadnezzar's uh, vision. And in this vision, he pictures a tree. Well, maybe I should just read that part of it for you verbatim. He has this dream of this tree. And it says, and you go down to verse uh, 10, these were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great, bigger than a redwood. And the tree grew and became strong and its height reached to the heavens. It gets higher and higher and higher and reaches the heavens. And it could be seen to the ends of the earth and its leaves were lovely, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. Evidently, the fruit is good and edible. And the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Not just the birds and the beasts, but everything is fed from this tree. Then everything changes. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, 
And he cried aloud and he said thus, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let them graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth and let his heart, it started out talking about a tree, now it says his. Let his heart be changed from that of a man, and now it's telling us a tree was a symbol of a man, and let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This is the decision by the decree of the watchers and this is the sentence by the word of the holy ones. In order, why is this all happening? That the living might know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he will and sets over it even the lowest or the basest of men. God can set great people or low people over a kingdom or a country. He is the one who rules. So Nebuchadnezzar, true to the Bible pattern, First calls his wise men. It's like the Pharaoh called his wise men. They couldn't figure out and they always end up calling a Jew at the end. You can find that uh, in Daniel chapter two, first they call the wise men, they can't figure it out. Pharaoh calls all the wise men, they can't figure it out, but they call Joseph. And then they call Daniel. And then chapter four, they call Daniel. Chapter five, they call Daniel. After all, the wise men can't figure it out. You know why? Because this book that was written by Jews is the word of God and it has the answers. That's what's being emphasized. Not that Jews are smarter, but it's the sacred chronicles that were committed to that nation that are the word of God. So the wise men come in, they say, we don't know what this means. Finally, he calls Daniel. Daniel comes in and he hears it and he knows right away what it is. And he looks kind of concerned and the king says, come on, Daniel, tell me. He said, well, the vision is not for you. It's going to make your enemies happy. He said, you're the tree. And you're going to be cut down because of your pride. And you're going to be humbled. And you're going to be like a beast. You think you're so brilliant. Now I'm paraphrasing. And you think so successful. Do you realize that nobody here can do anything except God gives you the gifts and he can take them away. Now, the book of Job tells us that everything you have, you can lose in one day. Mentally, physically, financially, you can lose it all. So don't be proud of what you have. Proverb tells us pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we see it happen again and again in the Bible, and we are not immune. I think all of us struggle with the desire to put self first, kind of self-worship. And Daniel gave some advice to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, my advice to you is that you break off your sins by doing righteousness and show mercy to the poor. It may be a lengthening of your tranquility. He didn't say the vision isn't going to come true. It's going to come true. But he said, you might have some peace. I advise you to repent. Humble yourself. It may be a lengthening of your tranquility. And Nebuchadnezzar, he took that to heart and he tiptoed around and he behaved for about a month, for about a year. It says 12 months. 12 months later, he couldn't help it anymore. You go to uh, Daniel chapter four, verse 29. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the royal palace, maybe up on the balcony, 
Sun's going down. The glint of the sun is on all the gold and the palaces and the walls and the music from the heralds that can be heard through the city and the king swells with pride as he beholds. He said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling of my mighty power, for the honor of my majesty? And... Uh, yeah, he looked at it all and he had built it all and he was very proud of it all. And Can I make a confession? You know, we spent 20 years from concept to completion of this church. Some of you came over from Sacramento Central. You know the history. And it was a long process. I came up here last week and it was springtime and everything was blooming. Nobody was here. And I looked at the place and I walked around and I just thought, what a wonderful place. And I started thinking, Doug, it was your determination. And I said, oh, Lord, please, no. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I saw it. It didn't take long. But it crops up so easy. To God be the glory. But, you know, as soon as you say that, you can become proud of your humility. It's not me, it's the Lord. Well, yeah, you catch people saying that. It's like, you know, after the sermon, people often go out and they'll try and say something nice. They don't know what else to say. I mean, you don't ever say rotten sermon, pastor. So they say, you know, nice sermon or something like that. And then the pastors, we sort of say, it's not me, it's the Lord. And I heard a pastor share a story one time. If you can picture Jesus coming down during the triumphal entry, he's on the Mount of Olives, He's coming into Jerusalem and everybody's shouting, Hosanna. They're taking off their clothes and their, their palms and they're putting in the path for this donkey to walk down the hill. And the donkey says, it's not me, it's the Lord. He doesn't need to say anything, does he? And so, you know, when someone compliments you, they say, praise God, thank you, you almost err on the side of false humility if you go the other way. It's like the church that uh, they were studying the subject of humility and the board got together and they said, you know, I think the most humble person in this church is Brother Jones. He is so humble. And they all agreed he is so humble. We ought to do something to thank him for his humility. Someone said, well, let's give him a button. He says, I'm humble. So the church presented him with a button that said, I'm humble. But as soon as he put it on, they took it away from him because he had the audacity to wear it. <laughs> so you can't win. As soon as you think, I don't think I'm humble anymore, then you become proud of it. So it's sort of like you know, an endless cycle. And Nebuchadnezzar says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. How can we lose the kingdom? Through pride. How did the devil lose heaven? Through pride. The kingdom has departed from you and they will drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they'll make you eat grass like the oxen and seven times will pass over you. That means a time is a year. It means one complete season. Seven times will pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomsoever he chooses. 
That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men. And here's where Nebuchadnezzar says, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built? Notice, I, royal dwelling, my mighty power, my majesty. And then the curse fell immediately while the word was in the king's mouth. Now, there's a lot of ancient history they don't know much about, but one era they do know a lot about is during King of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. They have found rooms, archaeologists filled with cuneiform tablets and writing with records and history to such an extent they even have a record of King Jehoiachin, King Jehoiakin, there's two of them, who was in the Babylonian prison. And it says what his allowance was. I mean, they've got a lot of records. The interesting thing about the, and this is a record of Nebuchadnezzar, one of many, in the British Museum. This inscription actually contains Nebuchadnezzar boasting regarding all he did to enlarge Babylon. So it's not only in the Bible, it's in history. What's amazing, though, is they've got all these records for the 39 or 40 year reign of Nebuchadnezzar, but suddenly, he stops making proclamations for seven years. And everybody wonders, why did he go silent? Well, the Bible tells us why he went silent. The history record of Babylon is that Nebuchadnezzar was in nature communing with God. Isn't it interesting the spin the politicians put on it? They were afraid of what kind of upheaval and intrigue would happen if anybody knew that the king had gone mad and he was groveling around out in the royal gardens eating grass. They weren't cutting his nails. It got long like bird claws and it says his hair was matted like eagle's feathers and he had turned into nothing more than a beast. Not much to be proud of there, huh? Some of you know your American history. You know that during the revolution, one reason America's independent is because King George III, he went crazy. He, he, it's not a nice way to say it, and they had a lot of theories about it, what it was, but he'd start getting manic and start raving and foaming at the mouth, and he'd talk incessantly. They had to restrain him. His pages had to sit on him. They put him in an old-fashioned, an early, what you would call primitive version of a straitjacket, and then he'd be okay for a while, and then he'd go mad. And part of it was when they were saying, do not tax America, they sent a delegation, they want to have more freedom, his pride said, no way. I'm the king. You're the slaves. Haughty spirit goes before fall. They say King George, two things they remember about him in history. He went crazy and he lost the colonies. He actually had a number of years of sanity, but history is not very nice to him in that way. So Nebuchadnezzar, at that end of seven years, during the seven years, he's out of it, living like an animal. It's amazing he would live on, on grass and vegetation. You know that bears are omnivores, but in the springtime about the only thing a bear eats is grass. And a lot of POWs said that in the worst of the POW season, they survived on grass and weeds that grew around the camps. And it's awful to think about, but it can sustain you. Then notice what happens at the end of that time you look in verse 34 in Daniel chapter 4. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. What is the remedy for pride? Instead of looking at ourselves, we look up. 
I lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He lifted his eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Now he said it's all about God's dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now, notice what, how it concludes. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. You notice, that's the God of the Jews, the God of Daniel. Now I extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice, and all who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Those are the last recorded words of Nebuchadnezzar. This is not the the subject of the sermon, but I, you know, I've got to stop here and just do a little side trail because everybody takes the seven times of Daniel chapter four and they try to find a future fulfillment for it. We know from the Bible when it says seven times, that seven times represents the seven years, the fulfillments in the Bible. Start of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, the restoration of his sanity, right? But there are other places in the book of Daniel where it says a time, a times, and a dividing of a time, and we know that that is a prophetic period of time where a day equals a year. You all still with me so far? So a lot of people have said, well, seven times, that's two times 1260, that's 2520. They say, what if there's a dual application? I'm giving you a heads up. This is not because I believe these things, this is because you're gonna run into it. There are people everywhere that try to take this prophecy of Daniel 4 and some pick uh, an arbitrary jubilee and they say starting from that jubilee and they try to pick a date for the second coming. Several have come and gone. Uh, you've got some people that said that it started with the fall of Israel. That's a tree being cut down during the time of Solomon. They, they fell and they track it to the Reformation. And then there are people you know, the Jehovah Witnesses out there, they started it with the destruction of Jerusalem in 606, and then they went to 1914, and they said Jesus was coming in 1914. How many of you know that? They, nobody here has heard that? Yeah, they, they, wow. They set a date, and they all said that he was coming in 1914. When he didn't come, they said, well, it was a spiritual coming. He was coronated, but we didn't see it. That's an easy out. And then probably the one that I thought had the most credibility was those that said that if you use the same starting point of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the silent period, he, his insanity came in 572 BC and that reaches to the birth of Israel as a nation, the tree now springing forth from the stump again. And they say the band of bronze and the band of iron is talking about they're broken free from their Greek and the Roman captivity. Anyway, that, that I thought was the most intriguing, but what in the Bible tells us to look for an outside interpretation? There is nothing. If you wanna know what the seven times represents, does the Bible tell us? 
it's Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. So as soon as you start looking for a day for a year, it's not that kind of prophecy. Anyway, I just wanted to share that with you before I move on because you're gonna run into it. How far do we have to go before we find another king that falls in that area? Next chapter. The next chapter in chapter five of Daniel, and, and I don't mean to rob Pastor Ross's thunder because he's studying Daniel now, but we're gonna get out of Daniel in just a minute. Belshazzar, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar died, uh, the next king was actually Nabadonis. For a brief period, there was a king named Evil Merodach, and he reigned one year, and then he was assassinated. He's the one that let Jehoiachin get out of jail. And then Nabadonis reigned, and Nabadonis, uh, he went off on these archaeological expeditions, and he started worshiping the moon god, and he left his son, so this is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, his name is Belshazzar, and he was gonna be in charge. But he was just so happy that he had the power of the king, even though technically he was second in line, that he just began to spend like crazy. You know, you grow up in the palace, you may not appreciate the, um, the industry and the wars Nebuchadnezzar went through to build things up. He just sort of inherited it all, and he was spoiled, and he, his advisors made him really aggravated with the God of Israel because here, Nebuchadnezzar, you're gonna probably see him in heaven, assuming you get there. Last thing Nebuchadnezzar says is he's worshiping God. And he suddenly becomes monotheistic where the Babylonians had many gods. And they all knew about the influence of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel on the Babylonian court and there was less and less emphasis in the idols and their gods. And so to put down the God of Israel, he had a great feast. It was really silly to do it because he knew the Medo-Persians were staging a war against him outside, but they said they'll never get through the walls and we can outlast them. He has a big party. And in the midst of this party, you can read here in verse three, he wants to show disdain for the God of Israel. And he commands that they bring the golden vessels that had been captured from the temple of Jehovah, from the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and that his kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. First of all, no one but the priests were supposed to touch these. So that is forbidden. And then they're drinking alcoholic beverages. And then they're using these vessels to toast and to praise their heathen gods. And they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple and they drank wine. This is verse four, chapter five of Daniel. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. You notice most of those elements are found in the image of Daniel chapter two. That was a big idol. So they're praising all of their idols with God's holy vessels. It's not the first or the last time that God's people have done that. We take those things that are sacred and we use them to praise Babylon. And while he's mocking God in this, this proud, arrogant act, in the same hour, fingers of a man's hand appear and they write opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that was writing. And the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so the joints of his hips were loose and his knees knocked together. You ever been so frightened that your legs shook? 
I know sometimes we don't do it here, but a lot of churches, you know, when they're doing the preliminaries, they sit all the elders up front in three or four chairs. And you sit there through all the preliminaries. You sit there through the announcements and the music and then all the stuff that's going on. And I'm not several times I'm sitting there and someone comes up to like sing special music. It's easier to see with the ladies because they got a dress on. The bottom of the dress is going like this. Because, you know, sometimes people get nervous in front of a crowd. And the king, he saw this bloodless hand writing burning letters on the wall and it was so obvious it actually recorded. Wow, it was quite a spectacle. His knees were knocking together and you could hear pop, 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 pop. This king who was suddenly, he had been so proud and so arrogant, mocking the God of heaven. He's not so proud no more. Haughty spirit before a fall. And they called all of the wise men and the wise men approved that they're not that wise. He says, I'll make him third ruler in the kingdom. He could only make him third ruler because he was the second ruler. And he said, I'll give them rewards. I'll give them a robe and a gold chain. And tell me, what does that say? Finally, the queen, who knew Daniel, knew his record. And I love this. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. She says to the king, there is a man. There is a man. That's what the butler said to Pharaoh about Joseph. There is a man. Humble man. He'd rather die than not pray to God. And any mystery he had been able to solve. So Daniel, they knew where he was. He hadn't been invited to the party, evidently. Or he decided not to go knowing what was going to happen. And they bring Daniel in. And uh, they ask him, he says, I'll give you all these rewards. And Daniel basically says, keep your rewards, but I'll tell you what it says. That's a real prophet. They don't ask for your credit card before they give you the word of God. And Daniel told him what the prophecy said. Let me see. We'll go to chapter 5, verse 13. Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king said to Daniel, Are you Daniel of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, and that you have light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. Now the wise men and astrologers have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me what it says. They could not read it. But I've heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make it known to me, you'll be clothed in purple and have a golden chain around your neck and you'll be third ruler in the kingdom. And Anne answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give rewards, your rewards to another. But I'll read the writing O king of the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingdom and majesty and glory and honor and because of the majesty that he gave him all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wished he executed, whoever he wished he kept alive, whoever he wished he set up, whoever he wished he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne. He's saying, you know what happened when he lifted himself up and you're ignoring that. And he lived with the wild animals. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart although you knew this. So why are we studying this subject? Daniel is telling Belshazzar, you should have learned from the experience of others of what the consequences are of this sin of pride. 
but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and you brought the holy vessels before your lords and your wives and your concubines. Basically, when it says the lords, their wives and their concubines, they kind of had their own harems. This place looked like a bordello. And here they're using the sacred vessels in this place. And you praise your gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then these fingers were sent. So now I'll tell you what it says. Meeny, meeny, tickle you farson. Daniel had inside scoop on what it said because, see, the Jews don't use vowels the way we do. They often write in uh, our uh, consonants and so he was able to look at that and be able to understand it. He says, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And you go to verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. But Daniel survived. Those that humble themselves will be exalted. You look in the next chapter, Daniel is now made the prime minister of the new kingdom. He that exalted himself is humbled. He that humbles himself will be exalted. We see this theme all through the Bible. One of the most dangerous things we can do is to embrace pride. You know, if you look with me in the book of Philippians, go to Philippians chapter 2, please. It's not only ancient kings, it also can affect Christians. Paul often had to talk about it, as did Peter, as did James and the others, and Jesus. Let this mind be in you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you. Why does he say let? Because we're normally resisting it. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. What is that mind? Who being formed in, um, who being in form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, you see this incredible reversal of roles the devil who is a creature, he wants to be God. But Jesus, who is the creator, he is willing to become a man. He's willing to come down and to humble himself. And it says, therefore, verse nine, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So you see that the one who exalts himself the most ends up being humbled the most. And he who humbled himself the most ends up being exalted. I heard about a young pastor that um, he just got a seminary, got his first church, had been through his studies, had great grades and he couldn't wait to preach his first sermon and he felt pretty confident that he was gonna knock their socks off with the power of his oration. And he went strutting up to the pulpit 
and started to preach and he looked out and saw the people and he looked at his notes and he had misplaced them and that got him flustered and then it just went downhill from there and he forgot what he was going to say and he got had a mind cramp and the more he thought about it the more scared he got and pretty soon he sort of mumbled the closing prayer and he walked off the platform and one of the elders came up to him at the door and took him aside and said young man he said if you had gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. If you had gone up humble, you could have come down confident instead of going up overconfident and coming down humiliated. The whole idea is we humble ourselves. If we're to be given any kind of esteem, that needs to come from God. It's not good for you to blow your own trumpet. And the Bible says, a many a bee, no, the Bible doesn't say this. I think it's Mark Twain. Many a bee has drowned in his own honey. And so we start praising ourselves and wanting glory, and we've got to fight that all the time because, you know, we're naturally selfish. But if we choose to humble ourselves, God says you can be exalted. I've got a lot more. We've got about seven kings we're going to look at. But uh, I thought maybe I'd close with this. I remember reading a story about Booker T. Washington, the famous educator who uh, took over the Tuskegee Institute there in Alabama and it grew into a very successful institution and um, took a lot of the slaves that had been freed during the Civil War and gave them the education they'd need to advance and grow in society. And... Um, he was walking through town there in Alabama one day and this white woman was standing on the street. She saw him walking by and he was just, just wearing a white shirt and slacks. And he said, uh, sir, I, I just, I wonder if you'd like to make a few extra dollars. And he said, what do you have in mind? She said, well, um, I need to split some rounds that are behind my house and um, I'll pay you, you know, 50 cents or whatever it is. And, and he wasn't actually in any pressing occasion at the moment. He said, well, I'll see what I can do. And he went and he started splitting the wood for the lady. And then she asked if he'd stack it by the back uh, kitchen wall, outside kitchen wall, and he's stacking the wood. One of her other workers came in and saw and recognized Professor Washington. And then he got done. She gave him his dollar fifty or whatever it was, and, and he left. And the worker came up and said, do you know who that was? That's the professor of the Tuskegee Institute, Booker T. Washington. And she was mortified that she had just assumed that man walking down the street because of his color was looking for a spare change. He had never told her who he was. He did the work. He took the $1.50. She came to his office the next day and she says, I hope you can forgive me. She said, I didn't know who you were. I said, no problem. He said, I wasn't busy. He said, I believe in manual labor and our institute needs all the money it can get. So I thought if I can get another $1.50, that'd be helpful. Well, it turns out she was a very wealthy woman and had a lot of wealthy friends. She told all her friends about the institute and they made big donations then to the institution. Humble yourself. If God's gonna glorify you, he will glorify you. And every day, we've gotta say and pray what John the Baptist said. You know, when John the Baptist had finished his work of announcing Jesus, soon it says more people were following Jesus than John. 
And Jesus' apostles were baptizing more than John. And his apostles started getting competitive and threatened, and they said, John, what's going on here? So you're the prophet, you're the Elijah-like prophet, and here this Jesus now is getting more disciples. And he said, no one can get anything unless it comes from God. He must increase, I must decrease. And that's something we all should pray every day. It's so easy for us to be selfish. We all have a broken compass needle. It always points to self. And unless you consciously correct it, you will struggle with pride. I mean, whether you correct it or not, you're going to struggle with pride. But we need to be sensitive to that and pray every day, Lord, let the mind of Christ be in us, that mind of humility and meekness. Is that your desire, friends?